very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest today, we just want to mention we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing us a dollar a month there. But today, Taylor and I are happy to have Henry Summers Hall returning to the show. Henry is a reader in the Department of Politics and International Relations and Philosophy at Royal Holloway University of London. He is co-translator of Solomon Maimon's essay on Transcendental Philosophy, the co-editor of A Thousand Plateaus in Philosophy, and the author of Hegel, Deleuze, and the Critique of Representation, Deleuze's Difference in Repetition, and Edinburgh Philosophical Guide. And I think the last thing that you had published that I'm aware of would be The Judgment and Sense in Modern French Philosophy a new reading of Six Thinkers. Henry, we're very happy to have you back on. We should have had you on sooner. It's been, I looked back, it was August of 2000, or 2022, rather. Oh, no, it's been a great bit to too long, back. but welcome back. <laughs> it's great to be back there. Thank you for inviting me. I, I really enjoyed coming on last time. So uh, <laughs> it's a real I pleasure was, to come back. Yeah, and I was telling Coop that we got, we got a lot of really nice feedback about our episode with you. It was well-received. That's always nice. Sometimes I feel like we, you know, we, we'll do a, a good episode and we may not get any feedback. That doesn't necessarily mean there wasn't a reaction, just that it's not shared. Encouraging all the listeners out there, you know, leave us leave us some comments too. We like that as well. But I did want to let you know that it was, it was well received and it's always nice to get that feedback. And so I wanted to share that with you. I'm really pleased. I was, like I say, I really enjoyed it. It's, uh, it's sort of, you know, we sort of do all this stuff that's um, like kind of in the trenches, a bit like today, really, you know, you <laughs> and you're doing like, bits of chapters and stuff and then it's quite nice to sort of have to think about how it all fits together a bit and sort of stand back so uh, it's actually been really useful just uh, just reading back over this stuff to talk about it today when you were on the first time you had mentioned you were writing this book is that correct i think yeah it's been a few years i think off and on i mean obviously it's you know i'm writing around teaching and things like that so right. it takes a while but i'm halfway through now i finished plateaus one two three and four and then 12, 13, and 14. I mean, I have to go back through and, and, you know, tie them all together, but halfway through at the present. Hopefully by the end of next year, this will be finished. Some of those chapters in the middle are a little bit shorter, right? I mean, I'm thinking of How Does One Make a Soulful Body Without Organs is a little bit shorter. Three novellas is, is a little bit shorter. Faciality is not, at least not compared to some of the longer chapters, right? So if you've knocked out 3, 10, 11, 12, those are some of the longer ones. Still got 10, 10 and 11. You, you still had to do 10. Okay, well, that's that's one of the longest. <laughs> All right, well, okay. Just to let the reader know, in case, since we didn't say, you know, last time we had you on, you had mentioned you're writing a book on a thousand plateaus, going chapter by chapter. 
And so this is what we're talking about today with you, Henry. Again, just to clue the readers in, we decided to focus on the 12th chapter or the 12th plateau. I guess we can call them plateaus or chapters. It, it works. I like to think that the notion of a plateau is not necessarily merely reducible to the quote unquote chapters in a thousand plateaus, right? It's a much more general concept, which am I, if I remember, am I correct? remembering correctly they derive from Bateson at least they say they derive it from Bateson right it, it's you know uh, a rise in, in intensity in and in a sort of conflict or situation be it political social whatnot that doesn't necessarily have a what we might think of as a standard trajectory of a rise and a fall with a beginning and an end but it doesn't necessarily get resolved in a simple way but the the level is is kind of left at a certain pitch. I know that Gregory Bateson works through this. He's got a nice little chapter on it about how this is a part of like mediating conflict in I forget which societies he's looking at. Anyway, Henry, jump in if if, if you can help me like finish this thought. <laughs> I can't remember either. Was it Polynesian societies? I... And they may have had a, a specific name that's failing me. So if if it comes to me later, I'll the Balinese, the Bali is that what it is? Maybe. Anyway, it doesn't matter, but but I, I kind of roughly am describing this, and I think it may then generalize the fact that the chapters, to a certain extent in A Thousand Plateaus, don't necessarily have a beginning, middle, and end. They are all rhizomatic, intermezzo, right? They're all sort of in resonance with one another, and so even if there may be a salient theme for each one, a lot of concepts and ideas and uh, topics we will see recur in ways that sometimes can be frustrating when when you know when you want to try to pin down like okay here is the the definition the designation of this one term it's not necessarily the whole story it could be just a particular aspect that's being highlighted at, at one time right well that's what's been in interesting about writing this book and particularly not necessarily writing it in the order of the plateaus in A Thousand Plateaus, because yeah. uh, I started with these. I started with the war machine. Well, I did the rhizome and then the war machine. And so, you know, I wasn't really clear, for instance, what an assemblage is. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's like a really key concept. But it's interesting how, yeah, like reading it through, these plateaus at the end, sort of 12, 13, 14, the nomadology mm -hmm. and the um, apparatus of capture, and then smooth and striated spaces, they do form a, a series in a way, you know, because they've got the propositions and you go through and you finish the nomadology with what, proposition nine, and then I think you start operating yeah. 10, you know, so you have that continuity. But yeah, I, I completely agree. It's quite a strange book in that sense, you know. I, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about this in lots of different ways, but you mentioned uh, talking about, we might talk about the Go chess analogy or not analogy, but the, the Joe Go chess comparison. And I've just been looking at the postulates of linguistics, for instance. And there, that, that same comparison is played out in terms of Chomsky and Labov. The same structure is operating there in terms of a very, very different field. And as right. you go through and look at more and more plateaus, what I think you find is that there's a kind of a resonance between them, such that each kind of enriches the other in a way that Sometimes it just makes something explicit, but other times there's just a kind of a deepening that's quite difficult to really put your finger on. But yeah, it's a very complex structure. I think that the Go Chess 
and I don't mind saying analogy. I saw that you, I know that analogy has its own baggage in Deleuze, specifically difference of repetition. But if we use it loosely, the way of playing out the idea of smooth and striated space, for example, in Go and Chess, I think that that's a fairly well-known example for readers of A Thousand Plateaus that at least you see it recur because I think it's particularly clear as a very helpful image. Maybe that's another word we could use. It's something immediate. Maybe not everyone's played Go, and that's fair. But I think most people are, even if you don't know necessarily the rules and haven't played a lot of chess, you can kind of very quickly understand the differences. You reiterate the example, which I think is it's good to keep that in mind. What Because obviously straight and smooth space become a lot more intricate. As we know, for the most part, we're not going to have a limit case of a pure example of a smooth or straighted space, at least in Thousand Plateaus with most of these seeming oppositions, we're going to have these mixtures. But at the very least, it's good to start with this notion. And again, I'll start with chess. And if you want, you can talk a little bit about Go. I don't know if you or Coop have played Go. I've only like thought yeah. about the rules of it. You played Go? I have a board and uh, okay. did play a few times online, but by no means a uh, an expert. Right. It's pretty, I mean, it, it's pretty hard, isn't it? <laughs> I do find it very intriguing. I mean, I think that movie Pie is the what got me interested in it. Right. And and so in chess, as we all know, the board is laid out. What, there's 64 squares as an eight by eight, something like that. I'm trying to remember, but each piece is has a defined role, so we can only make certain moves. It's sort of a linear progression. There's only so much you can do in, in one turn, right? You can only capture one piece at most uh, in one turn. A lot of times you're not even doing that. You're really trying to occupy a space that's already gridded based on the figures. But Go seems to be a lot more complex and seems to go into, a, I suppose, another way that they talk about smooth space sometimes. And I could be wrong here. So correct me if I'm wrong, Henry. Is nomadic distribution supposed to be another way of, of speaking of smooth space? Or is it more complex than that? Yes, I think so. Should I not conflate distribution with space? Maybe they mean that there would be a difference between distribution and space. So maybe maybe that, that would be the thing. But, but, but perhaps smooth space is, is something like a nomadic space. No, that, I think that's uh, right. I mean, I think okay. that's right. I think this is really the problem at the heart of the whole book, in a way. You know, striated space, the, the notion of chess, you know, what you have in chess is you have like a set of rules that are fixed, fixed rules and fixed meanings to pieces. And then you move them around in various ways. And what that means is, in a sense, the, the form pre-exists the particular instantiation. You know, it's all right. there in advance in that the pieces have a meaning. You find this in lots of other cases that they're looking at. You know, Chomsky and linguistics is the same thing. You know, have, you have very basic meanings. And then you have rules that allow you to combine these meanings in particular ways and to form, you know, sentences. So just as in a game of chess, there's a kind of almost an infinite number of games possible from a finite number of elements that are constants and then a set of right. rules. You find the same thing in linguistics and Chomsky and linguistics. You have a finite set of elements. You have a certain set of rules of combination, and that gives you all of the stuff. A finite uh, competence and infinite performance, something like this, right? Am I... Yeah, yeah. I'm, well, trying to, I'm trying to use Chomsky's terms here, right? Yeah. So like performance is going to be finite because there's only, a, you know, you can't you can't actually make a sentence that goes on forever. But the kind of the, the competence there is going to be there where you can construct an infinite number of sentences. But what that relies on in both cases is that you have 
you have a whole set of rules that in a sense pre-exist the playing out of that stuff in the world. And I think, you know, we might get on to Kleist later on, but something very similar happens when, you know, Hegel's critical of Kleist. You know, Hegel says, well, you know, Kleist, they think he's like Shakespeare, but he's not because the people in Kleist's plays have no character. (laughs) By character, he means interiority, something like that. I think that becomes synonymous in in the language that you use and perhaps what Deleuze and Guattari are thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. It's a kind of moment of interiority, but it's also, it's like kind of, you know, you can see it as character is like a moment before the play, almost outside of the time of the play. I see. It's I see. Anatolian, you know, where the, there's a character that, that these figures have, and then the play is just the unfolding of these characters in, in okay. a situation. So you find the same thing there, where there's a form that, pre-exists what happens and in all these cases obviously we find we find like problems you know so as um Lamov notes you know when we're using language for instance you know we invent new forms of language we kind of say things that haven't been said before that doesn't really make sense in Chomsky's world because you know Chomsky relies on the fact that we're all using the same rules so there's right. no, no value to to us starting to say things that are slightly different because the ability to communicate is going to get worse. And so the value of that language suffers. So variation becomes very, very difficult. So Mm. what you find happening is this claim that the form is there, it's expressed in time, and imperfections are kind of like a form of noise. It doesn't work properly. It's just a form of noise. But to get back to chess, that's the model of chess, you know, where you have all of the stuff is kind of before the game, and yeah. then the game is just the playing out in the time of the game of the stuff that exists before. Whereas Go is something for Deleuze and Guattari that's much more, whether there's a kind of creation of a space, rather than the playing out within a space. As you put the pieces down, and you're kind of trying to control territory on the Go board, the sort of the way the space is organized changes. Now, I mean, obviously, you're still putting pieces onto a Euclidean board, onto a right, right. board there, but they see it as a kind of, the thinking behind it as being a lot more like a Riemannian space, you know, like a space where, as you put the pieces down, the structure of the space itself changes. So you no longer have this sharp divide between kind of constants and variables for them that you find in the kind of chess model. Fixed space, pieces just moving through that space according to constant rules. There's a phrase that they steal from, I say steal, I mean that in a positive way, not in a negative way, right? They, you know, they reprise from Virilio, a fleet in being, where they're describing maritime warfare and and the way of sort of occupying, you know, the surface of the water, which also gets mirrored in air warfare, right? And so maintaining a fleet in being seems to be also perhaps applicable to how one strategizes and go in terms of occupying a space. That makes sense to me. I don't have much to say about that, but I no, think no, no. I, I, I'm just trying to. I'm trying to. I wanted to say. Uh, I wanted to say the phrase "fleet and being" because I think it's. I think it's pretty. It's a pretty cool phrase. Yeah, yeah. So, so if we don't even uh, unpack it more, you know, shout out to Virilio, who seems to be, especially in the footnotes, not just in the footnotes, also in the body of the text, even in this chapter. But Virilio seems to give them a lot of food for thought and so it's it's great to uh to unpack some of that and uh, coop and i what was it about six months ago we did um we did virilio's book on war, war and, cinema. and cinema and um 
that was a lot of, of fun and you can see some of the resonances and uh and it, it kind of tracks with a lot of the content of this chapter because it is kind of looking in his own way at let's say the machinic phylum and it's the development of technology and its relation to war obviously really is using his own categories but and i guess i would also like to circle back you know last time we had you on you told a, a very nice story about your philosophical origin story and i guess i would just want to see if you had any thing to add in terms of of tackling a thousand plateaus in terms of your trajectory where a thousand plateaus in particular became drew you in to make you want to to write about this book in particular it's obviously a fruitful work that could be unpacked for well you could say a thousand years right but uh but how did that strike you that that desire to to tackle this project well i think it's um i mean to be honest i i finished my my last book and uh i was planning on writing a book on sartre okay and, and i still am um, yeah but I kind of felt that I needed to have more time to really think through what I was going to do there. And I sort of felt like, you know, I'd always worked on the early work and um, I've, I've not really understood what's going on in A Thousand Plateaus very well. And, you know, you read people like Zizek and Badiou, who are very, very dismissive of this later work. You know, they sort of see it as the, the work that um, made Deleuze famous in the American literature department. But yeah itself lacks any substance so i just thought it'd be a kind of nice sort of quick project to take on a quick project yeah other projects to to just go through and write a book on a thousand plateaus okay but um, as you know like it was obviously the case it's like a really long complicated text yeah and so um you know it's sort of dominated what i've been doing for the past couple of years really but but i think it's a fantastic book and in many ways i think you know deleuze is obviously political in his earlier work but I don't think there's um, there's a particularly mature notion of what political engagement would be. And I think you start to see it coming through in A Thousand Plateaus. I think particularly in this plateau, where you have different notions of um, organisation and you have this idea that you know, states kind of rely on this, this kind of nomadic moment of organisation too. You start to see that there's a, there's a politics there that's quite valuable. You know, looking forward as well, I, I'm kind of aware that there are some connections here that I, I haven't quite worked out how to draw out between the nomadic and the sedentary and between the state and the, and the nomad. And what Sartre is doing in his later work between the sort of serialization, which is very, very close to axiomatics in some way, you know, this kind of majoritarian thinking and what he calls the group infusion. My suspicion is. That in the background of this, this text is an attempt to try and think this notion of the group infusion that Sartre has in a way that, that makes it work. Because, you know, for Sartre, there are these moments where real human connections are possible, but they only occur in moments really of revolution, you know, where the state breaks down. What Deleuze and Guattari are doing here, I think, is, is trying to, to think that Sartrean notion, particularly in the, in the War Machine Plateau, in a way that gives it some kind of more positive determination. Interesting. And you see it all the way through in the, you know, the, the school of bridges and roads and the right. 
the street children of Bogota. And, you know, there, there are all these attempts to, to give at least sort of semi, at least some kind of like non-transient account of what this kind of non-state way of being in a group would be. So that was a bit rambling. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I see. It, it well, sort of you started to go on a, a journey from the Sartre book, but, you know, you made clear one of the the threads, at least, that drew you towards a thousand plateaus, because, you know, as you point out in, in the chapter you share with us, but also as we can see in this nomadology chapter in particular, Deleuze not only is reworking and, and further refining concepts that he had developed in Difference of Repetition with the critique of the image of thought and what he calls in this book. I'm not sure, I don't think he had used the term in Difference of Repetition, but this notion of a noology as opposed to the study of an image as a thought, as opposed to ideology, which I think on the very second, which is like the second page of <clears throat> the book and in, in, in Rhizome, they kind of say there is no ideology and never has been, which continues some of the ideas and further some of the ideas from Anti-Oedipus, which makes sense because obviously it's supposedly two volumes, right, of a larger, sometimes we forget capitalism and schizophrenia, or it's easy to forget that these there is supposedly a connection. And so, I mean, you can see it in a lot of places, one of which I think is in terms of serialization and group infusion. I always had read Deleuze and Guattari as modeling the notions of subjugated groups and subject groups based on this Sartrean distinction, taking it in their own context. But you can also see like stuff on the nomad. You can see that very clearly in Anti-Oedipus, specifically like, um, I think it's, in one of the sections on the Urshad or around there, where they're talking about these religious sects becoming nomadic and all of this, and they don't fully develop that notion, but they they already are kind of thinking of something that will become, or they'll become salient in uh, their discussion of like the Crusades, early Islam, et cetera. And we can also see, obviously, that, as you point out again in the chapter, a notion like nomadic distribution we find in different repetition. It is interesting to see at least a line going from DNR to ATP, kind of deepening some of the, and perhaps making more explicit the political implications of something like the critique of the image of thought. And I think that Guattari is one of those, which is why I think Guattari is is so fruitful in helping Deleuze to to till some of that soil and make make more explicit what, if not implicit, is not as emphasized in Deleuze's earlier solo work. No, I think that's right. I mean, I'm not, I don't know Guattari well enough, and that's a project for later this year, but there's very much a difference in tone. And I think I think you're right, it's the same project in many ways. And I think those categories that you brought in the, the nomadic distribution and the sedentary distribution are really, really key to this text. All the way through this question of um, whether we're kind of surrounded by stuff that's kind of some of it's relatively stable and some of it's moving around. And that's the way the world is. And, you know, the question about whether essentially we've got static frameworks that are kind of somehow pushed into time. And then there's a kind of a noisy process whereby, you know, there's a kind of imperfection added by their temporalization, which is the kind of sedentary distribution, right? You know, Mm -hmm. the idea that, you know, there's, for instance, an archetype of what an organism is. And then when it's, when it's actualized in time, 
you know, maybe the actualization isn't perfect. So we get like a slightly less ideal form. And then this idea of the nomadic, which is the idea that time, in a sense, organizes itself into things that look like structure. You know, so there's a process where intensity organizes itself into what kind of appear to be structured elements, you know. I mean, they're not perfectly structured. That's an idealization. But the strata that one finds in the... Sorry, that's my fault. Nope. nope. <laughs> the strata that one finds in the... Um, in the the geology of morals, for instance, you know, they're a kind of emergence from a field of intensity. And something similar is going on here, you know, the attempt to, to understand how state structures emerge without relying on the state already being there structurally before it kind of emerges into time, although that's complicated by the images for the image and of thought. And it's complicated by the Earth shot, right? It's it is an interesting hypothesis, which you know. The further back archaeologists dig, it's like they keep uncovering more and more, you know, empires and, and whatnot, which is which is what makes them uh, remain allied to Pierre Kloster and the critique of evolutionism, right? As though we we kind of start with, you know, a state of nature where there isn't any power. And that's really just not yet a development of the harnessing of the forces of what the state will bring in its hierarchization and division of labor, et cetera, as though there is a natural evolution going on. And, you know, it is, I suppose he had, he had passed away just a few years before a thousand plateaus, because after Antiochus was published, if you look in the chaosophy edition, which is under Guattari's name, but it's like a round table at which uh, Pierre Kloster is, is participating in. I think he gives one long response, but he's very complimentary to the work done in the in chapter three of Antiedipus about savages, barbarians, civilized men, whatever, you know, and specifically this, you know, he's he's kind of fascinated with the fact that what what is this critique of psychoanalysis doing in spending the longest chapter devoted to ethnology, right? Ethnography. Look, what what is going on here? And he gives them some credit for making explicit some things that may have still been in, presumably in debate in anthropology, you know, one of which is this notion of exchange not being being primary, which we talked about what a couple of weeks ago, Coop, right, with Derrida. But in any case, uh, we we can we can try not to refer to volume one of Capitalist Schizophrenia for now. I I did um I did want to give the chance to discuss one thing that I found fascinating. It makes sense that you wrote the chapter on rhizome before this, because you do refer back to that, that chapter, which you didn't share with us, but which you, which makes sense that the other chapters after rhizome would refer back to some of the work that you had done in that preliminary chapter. And one of the things that I thought was interesting, and I wanted to give you a chance to maybe talk a little bit about it, was your use of the notion of a swarm of mosquitoes as articulating the notion of the rhizome and we could obviously talk about a few of the aspects of it one of one of the last of which in your chapter that i remember is you know not the need for an extra organizational dimension right it's kind of the army without a general notion that they use in that chapter and i always just think of n minus one you subtract the one or the transcendent dimension from from a rhizomatic multiplicity 
but um do you want to say anything about about this notion of the swarm of mosquitoes if that was arbitrary or how that example came to you or if you know just anything uh at all you'd like to to share on that front yeah of course i mean i think it, you know it's their example so um oh i had forgotten that <laughs> so okay but it comes from a piece by is it Rosenstein and Petito that they refer yeah, to? Yeah, the mathematicians. It's their analysis of organization. And they they provide, I think it's them anyway. Yeah. They they talk about hierarchical structures. And when you have a hierarchical structure of organization, then this becomes really key in the war machine too. You invariably have several features, like you have roles in the hierarchy, like in a military hierarchy, and um you have people occupying those roles, and then you have lines of communication established beforehand. The kind of obvious thing, there are kind of chains of command, and then also, you know, communication goes up and down along these along these hierarchies. You know, you don't you don't ask the soldier next to you what you should do. He's kind of commanded by someone above, and so are you. So there's a whole structure there already. That's fine, but you know, invariably, therefore, you, as well as the individuals, you have this kind of extra dimension of organization that's kind of overlaid on top to make it work. There's all sorts of technical things around Euclidean geometry around there too. But the mosquito case they bring in because it's a case where, you know, you've got these mosquitoes flying around and, you know, they're just sort of flying around in random patterns. And it's a bit like pieces on a go board as well, right? You know, they're just, mm-hmm. just kind of there. And um, they just follow a really simple rule where they've got this, they've got their visual field there in front of them. And if if they're a kind of like, if most of their visual field is mosquito free, then they like fly back in because it means that they're on the edge of the field, right? Okay. You know, okay. Most of it's free. So they, it's like they're kind of already facing away. So they fly back towards the mosquitoes. And that's the only rule they follow. Hmm. And with that one rule, you know, this the mosquito swarm kind of maintains a system of organization. Interesting. You know, maintains a structure. And it's a sort of structure that's um that's kind of stable, metastable, quasi-stable but yet defined by the kind of the interaction of the elements themselves. This ties in really with the notion of nomad science. I don't know if you want to go there. Should we go there now? Yeah, I mean, I would love to. I I would, because we got a chance on Friday to talk with Thomas Nail, and I had already anticipated some of the stuff that he was talking about in his kinetic materialism. I had said, this sounds a lot like nomad minor science versus royal science. And we didn't really get to, we didn't really dive into that because he didn't write about it, but I was already anticipating this conversation. So yes, please. Okay, yeah, no, great. I mean, I, I was curious as to whether you'd go through this stuff. I mean, he, he's done so much stuff. Right, yeah, he's, he's, he's prolific. Uh, but yes, I've always been fascinated by this opposition. And I like that you put a lot of emphasis on Michel Serre, uh, The Birth of Physics. That was a book that Cooper and I covered uh, a few weeks after we had you, I think, well, maybe a few months after we had you on. But we got to go into a little bit about turbulence. But we didn't really discuss all of the how much they really do rely on Sare in this plateau for this proposition or yeah for this proposition yeah it's really key i think uh, it's re- key to the to much of the projects i mean there are there are all sorts of other references i think you know the, the difficulty always with Deleuze and Guattari too is um you know you can work this stuff through in terms of Michel Sare but you know Bergson's there doing very very similar things right but to stick to the Sayre, you know, Sayre talks about Lucretius and this notion of Lucretius where, you know, you've got matter falling down 
you know, just coming straight down vertically. And then there's the, the clinamen, there's a kind of slight deviation and it causes things to bump into each other. And that's how the world comes into being. You know, that's obviously one of those quaint models that you get, you know, you sort of read it in first year philosophy class and it's like, it's interesting, but it's like, isn't it funny how, what people used to think back then? There's that kind of model, which is which is the kind of the logic of sol solid bodies. But what Sarah argues, and um, Deleuze and Guattari take, take him up on this, is that it's much better understood in terms of flows. So if you think about a kind of a laminal flow, that's a flow where, you know, all of the, the elements in the flow are kind of moving parallel to each other in the same direction, then what, what Sayre takes Lucretius to be saying is that, you know, that's the model where you have this flow. And then you have a slight moment of turbulence. And that slight moment of turbulence disrupts the flow. And it's the disruption that causes structure. What structure in that case? Well, structure is more like not things, not collections of stuff, but it's more like vortices, you know, turbulence. You, originally, you get like a kind of slight moment and then you'll get as the as the turbulence increases, you'll get vortices forming. Now, vortices are sort of once again sort of semi-stable structures that emerge, but unlike the matter falling through space, where that matter falling through space is kind of matter in space, vortices are distortions in the surface of the water itself. You know, they're not like an extra element. They're actually the surface, you know, like a wave is a part of the water itself. So with that model, you get the N minus one. You know, you don't have the atoms falling in the space. You have the, the stream itself and then you have the turbulence. But it's also very much like the, the mosquito swarm, where you have this kind of structure that from a distance looks stable. But in fact, it's kind of constantly in motion. You know, the vortex is constantly in motion. And, and this is why later on they'll say there are no points you know, in the nomad system, there, there are always like vectors and movements. You know, right. It looks stable, but it's really a movement. And that's going to be their model for matter in a way. You know, matter is this kind of this constant movement. And if you combine that with um, Riemannian geometry, you know, this kind of more advanced geometry, then you're not just talking about like a surface that's distorted. But, you know, like Einstein says that space as a whole is curved. You actually have a distortion of space in more than those, in more than just the surface. You know, the space itself becomes distorted. So that's the model they're trying to develop. You know, it's almost like the, once again, you know, the, the Lucretius is an analogy based on the, the surface of a stream of water. And they're trying to say, well, it's, you know, space as a whole is, is distorted by turbulence. And that sort of turbulence, those singularities, generate these sort of structures we find around us they have some diagrams in, in the footnotes and one of them is Michel Serre and they they show like the difference in some of the singularities that he uh he looks at and the kind of um the shape that you, do you know what I'm talking about I I uh, I don't know if, if it's anywhere near this plateau but they have a few diagrams in the in the footnotes but they show some of those different singularities One's like almost like a bottleneck and one's you can almost think of like like highways and things like this. I think one of them is kind of almost like a we can almost see a highway interchange. And that key point singularities is something that we see Deleuze early Deleuze resurface and it shapes the work in a lot of ways. And and I did think that 
it's not strictly nomad science, but it reminds me of the opposition between nomad science and raw science. When you when you turn to Simon Don and use an example that they themselves look at by arguing, for example, as Simon Don does and as Deleuze and Guattari take him up to be, you know, there's a way in which, for example, wood can be treated in a way that doesn't respect its singularities. And you can just use a saw or a lathe and treat it as undifferentiated matter. But there's also a way, I mean, you give the example of using a wedge. I'm also thinking of one could use, um, I forget the name of the knife, but you could, you could kind of whittle wood in a way that would respect the knots and, and other singularities in the wood, the grain. And you could even go further and choose a certain tree which would have different singularities than others. You know, in Georgia, we have all of these fucking pine trees everywhere, and they, they would more or less be good for the sawmill, although they don't have a lot of matter compared to, to bigger trees, but they wouldn't necessarily be maybe as interesting to an artisan who isn't merely trying to get some logs out of it. So this is where they sort of follow Simon Don and talk about already in matter there are implicit forms i think is the word that the phrase that simon don used which is important for one of the first ways not the only way right but one of the first ways that simon don is complicating the hylomorphic model received at least from aristotle who may or may not have who knows if i mean we can give him credit for articulating it at least right of this notion of matter as a kind of passive receptacle for form and i think throughout the work Throughout the whole A Thousand Plateaus, they, uh, they really take up this challenge against hylomorphism to a great extent, to even to the point where I don't think we can understand what's going on with abstract machines, for example, which we can leave aside for now. But, but just as an example of we can't really understand what's going on about these degrees of deterritorialization, et cetera, without the concern of the hylomorphic model, perhaps as a dominant image of thought. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, if we go back to the command and control model, you know, mm-hmm. they, yeah. then um, one of the claims they'll make here is that, you know, the emergence of ge- descriptive geometry is really important. You know, so you have this notion in, I think, the 18th century, maybe the early 19th, where you start having, you move from a model where you'd have an architect or an engineer would say, we need this kind of structure to be built. And then the artisans who know how the material works would, you know, create structures that fulfilled those needs. So they have a, a model that's a kind of negotiation and the, the communication is going in lots of different directions. Now, once you can specify form very, very precisely, you no longer have a negotiation, but you have a model, they argue, where the designer, the genius will say, I want this, and he'll give the exact specification about what it's going to look like to someone else who then makes it. And, you know, you lose the notion of the sort of singularities of material, but you also now have like a very clear hierarchy where mm. someone designs and someone makes. That change is um, is a movement away from a, a situation where the communication is complicated and different distinctions are being made and to a situation where the forms of communication, the, the directions of communication are given in advance and the patterning is there and you have this kind of universalist model. You're absolutely right. It's fundamental to what they're doing, this, this notion of implicit form in Simon Don. And here, 
it's the same in Simon Don as well, I guess. But here, it's very much at play in the in the politics of the war machine, and then the apparatus to capture later on. Again, Simon Don is kind of reminds me a little bit of of the early Deleuze, where the politics is it seems to be part and parcel of the ontology, but it's never necessarily extremely forefront. Even when looking at different societies and the collective individuation, et cetera. But I'll leave that aside just to say, you know, he does look at the hylomorphic model, lends itself to a type of political, a social political or organization where there is a master who is unfamiliar with the matter and doesn't need to be and is giving orders, is giving like form, is supposedly active, but it's the slaves who carry out the work that actually like have the knowledge and develop it. It's a little bit Lacanian, you know, in the sense in which it's the field of knowledge, it's the field of the slave, it's, you know, Hegelian, Lacanian. Obviously, you would be able to fill some of that in because of your work on Deleuze and Hegel, but there is implicit or no there is explicit very much so in this critique of the images of thought in noology as Deleuze and Guattari call it a uh, political vector absolutely I think it's um well I think it runs through the whole book one of the interesting things for me is for instance that you know the notion of the organism is such a common metaphor for the state you see the state as this kind of organic structure and that's you know that's, that's key if you look at someone like Hegel but if you look at some of the earlier chapters, like the geology of morals, it kind of opens the way to what goes on in the war machine, because you have this recognition that organisms are not a type that's imposed on matter, where the recalcitrance of matter just means that the, the form isn't properly taken up. Instead, you have this model where what becomes important is the way the singularities, you know, when, when genes obviously came for proteins, and it's the sort of the singularities in the environment within which the protein is constituted lead to the structure that protein has. So, so suddenly you have this much richer account there. And then, you know, when you get here, it suddenly turns out that the, the state too is like an organism, but it's like an organism that's a kind of Simondonian organism rather than a, a kind of 18th, 19th century with the pre-individual milieu or something like this, right? Yeah, and there's this the, the nomadic moment is, you know, you can see it as a sort of state structure, but that's to to just take one aspect of the assemblage. That's to see the assemblage in terms of the extensive and to cut the intensive out. And in reality, it's this kind of double process of the, the kind of the extensive and this kind of movement up and down that the intensive gives you through the nomadic where structures are smoothed. Absolutely. It's all political. I think it's interesting. One more point about minor science before I definitely want to let Coop, I know you had some some brilliant points to because we have talked about the passage. I'm just trying to think because I do want to maybe if we can, if we don't hit all of them, there's a couple of points as the, the axioms and the propositions develop in the nomadology. You know, first, what it, it's the exteriority of the war machine to the state is attested by mythology and Ames epic drama is attested by epistemology, which may not be the second one, but that's what we're talking about now. So the last point on this attestation to the epistemology, which we haven't even really delved into Archimedes and him, he, you know, he's making more machines against, you know, he's the engineer versus the, uh, the state thinker or whatever. But I, I was thinking about how last time we got to talk to you at length about the Hegel Deleuze opposition, if you will, or the conflict or whatever. Hegel, even Deleuze says, I probably tongue in cheek, right, where he's like, look, 
you know, in recreating this history of philosophy, somebody has to be the villain. Why? Who better than Hegel? He kind of even like explicitly says this. But I was wondering about the fact that it may be. I think Hegel steals a lot of the show, a lot of the limelight from someone like Descartes. I do think that Deleuze, Descartes, you can also draw out a number of strong oppositions. And even that's how the image of thought chapter begins and spends a lot of time looking at Descartes' notion. I think therefore I am, you know, thinking as being this kind of thing that everyone knows what it means. You know, so he's kind of showing how if we get rid of explicit presuppositions, for example, man is rational animal or featherless biped, we still can have a lot of these implicit presuppositions, which may not always be able to be fully eliminated, right? So this is why the circle has to be very tortuous. But I was just thinking about how Descartes, and you spend some time in your chapter looking at how Descartes does seem to be a great representative of this type of state thinker. For example, in a lot of the things we've already, in perhaps like defining space in terms that we could say is striated, right? In terms of mere extension, movement becomes secondarized. It's merely kind of a displacement of bodies, a kind of gridding of space, if we can think of Cartesian coordinates, as useful as those developments are and as useful as they can be for a type, a certain type of thinking, it's not the whole story. So I was just kind of thinking of this Descartes-Deleuze opposition, which you replay in your chapter as Descartes versus Leibniz, right? Because there's something Leibniz finds missing in Descartes' account of, for example, something like extension to account for space. The Descartes stuff's there in lots of places. It's also there in, you know, numbering number and numbered number. But, you know, Descartes ultimately conceives of matter. You know, we talked about the the logic of solid bodies briefly. You know, Mm -hmm. this Lucretian, the sort of classical model of what Lucretius is doing, where you have atoms as sort of fixed things. Now, Descartes' model of, of what bodies are is essentially a body is a set of geometrical properties plus impenetrability. It's the kind of Euclidean properties plus impenetrability. Now that means that that Descartes really rules out any account of motion. You can have things moving, but you can have things only moving in terms of them being displaced from here to here to here to here. But he doesn't have an account of, like Leibniz shows, for instance, he doesn't have an account, or he can't give an account potentially of something like momentum. How do things actually move? This is kind of one of the the key claims that's going to run through the difference between the smooth and the striated. Is you know in the striated you find behind the stuff. You know, this is what Descartes' claim is, right? You know, well we look at all this stuff around us. It's all very confusing, but there are clear and distinct ideas there. And what are the clear and distinct ideas that kind of capture the the real reality, the real structure of things? Well, it's these kind of geometrical properties. And the rest, once again, is noise. You know, colour is noise, sound. These are just kind of inessential aspects. So behind things, we find structure. And because we find structure as kind of given atemporal structure, we're unable to really account for variation. And that's a much more complicated argument to be given there. But for Leibniz instead, you know, the essence of matter really is force. I actually think that the places where this is, is most interestingly expressed in these plateaus, and this plateau and elsewhere, is the stuff on navigation, you know, escalating okay. navigation. Because, you know, Deleuze and Guattari say, 
think about navigation. How do we navigate? Well, you know, Western sailors, for instance, look up at the stars and, and they sort of see these, these field of things that are kind of fixed in place and they use them as points for navigation. Now, the Eskimos kind of you know, exist in, the, in the, the sources they use in this world where it's sort of seemingly there are no fixed landmarks. You know, everything's in motion. It's always snowy. They navigate by a sort of a feel of the forces that constitute that landscape. You know, the wind, etc. the sort of changes in intensity, you know, tracks and all this stuff that's going on that we're simply unable to see because we see things in terms of form. So there's this kind of idea that underlying matter is this, this kind of structure of forces that's constituting the intensive forces. And that's really the, the key opposition. You know, Descartes is one of the, the central thinkers of form. You know, Leibniz gives an account where form is subordinated to force. But the irony, of course, is that, um, you know, the early sailors, when they sailed across the Atlantic to you guys in the New World, then, um, you know, they didn't, they didn't really navigate by the stars all the time because, you know, like, it was really cloudy in the Atlantic, right? Was, okay, okay. <laughs> So, you know, they were using these same kinds of techniques whereby, you know, they would be sort of seeing what the wind was blowing and they'd be sort of seeing what the what kinds of waves were present. All of those kind of constitutive, intensive processes going on around them, they would be using those too, because you, know, you can't see these kind of atemporal field of stuff that's supposed to be organising your world. So in the nomadic, obviously, then is associated with with that, with movement. And that's why they say that, you know, they follow Virilio in saying that at the heart of the nomadic is the, is the, the prey. You know, you've got the chase, you've got the hunter and the hunted, but, you know, the hunter just wants to stop. <laughs> he, wants to, he wants to kill the thing and stop. Yeah. And he wants the, the movement to stop. Whereas the prey, uh, I mean, I suppose in reality, the prey wants to stop too, but the prey is all about movement, you know, and the continual movement and that process. And so, there's this connection between the nomad and the weapon and movement and underlying intensity and a recognition that there are constitutive processes underlying the world. Once again, you know, it's just like the mosquito swarm. You know, the swarm appears to be stable, but there are these constitutive processes underlying that apparent stability. And in reality, it's a quasi-stable object. I was gonna I was gonna recede, uh, recede the floor. I know. I can no, I can, I can go, keep, go ahead. Just keep, keep moving. Keep moving. All keep right. Moving. Well, yeah, <laughs> keep keeping be a little nomadic. I um I did like how you started the chapter, which makes sense. I guess we could talk a little bit about it. Right. As I mentioned, they start with mythology, which I suppose makes sense if we're going to, um, so to speak, go back to origins, quote unquote. Mm. And Dumazil is is a fascinating thinker and writer not all of his work and he was prolific as well you know not all of his work has been translated but some of the books have been and there a few of them are done by zone books who've, who've done a who, who have, a, have a pretty nice library and it's not too expensive i remember reading um one of the works they cite it's not the only work but it's one of the works they cite the the mitra viruna volume and these stories about salt about sovereignty and one of the things that i thought was interesting thinking back on this was how the binding uh the bond and the contract right the, it, it reminded me a little bit of the throughout the book we can see these 
dualities work out and then they obviously mix and they multiply but it reminded me a little bit of the double pincer movement right god is a lobster from the third plateau but this notion of the state and there's a third right because the state if we have mitra varuna or romulus numa on one side the other binding and distributing there is that third figure the exterior of the war machine where whether it be can't remember if it's a Norse, if it's Tyr or some other god. No, I think Tyr might be one of the binders. There is this god of war, so to speak, who who breaks up the duality. But when Norse, you have Odin, and maybe it's Odin and Tyr, and then there's a third one. Odin. Odin, the yeah, he would be one of the the organizers. And then, um, in any case, shows I got to reread my my Norse mythology. That's embarrassing. I guess I wanted to give you a chance to maybe talk a little bit about how the chapter begins, a little bit about what they find important in this double pincer movement of Mitra Varuna, Romulus Numa. The movement itself, it comes from, you know, as you say, Dumazil brings it in, and you have these two moments, the state's founded with these two moments, and it's repeated in all sorts of myths, and you find it in you know, the, the, the Roman myth in terms of Romulus and Numa, or you find it in uh, Mitra and Varuna in the, gosh, is that an Indian myth? I can't remember now. But in, I, uh, yeah, I believe so. I uh, because it, the, is it Indra the third that like breaks it up? Yes, um, okay, yeah. So I think, you know, the, the, you have these two gods and one is a kind of trickster god or a magician who binds and one is a god of contracts. So these these two moments, these two gods, and they're sort of seen as oppositional principles. You've got this kind of the magic binding, and then you've got the, the contract. But uh, Dumazil and Delizmatari follow him here, sees these as, as kind of dual gods that together give the foundation of the state. But I think this is really key to, well, like a lot, a great deal of what goes on here. I mean, the central idea I think that they come up with is if you think about the, the pre-state society, then, as Clastras talks about it, you don't have a notion of work in pre-state society. Right. They talk about there being kind of melodic conception of action, where people just do things, you know, and they do things in a way that's it's not tied to work. Now, what happens in the state is you have this, this first moment, which is a moment of binding. And the first moment of binding is, in a sense, the movement where you move from this model where actions are... I suppose, understood as, in a sense, processes once again, you know, people act in terms of what's underlying, what people do, what is this kind of continuing process that's holding things together. And it becomes bound in the state into the notion of work. Now, work is the idea that you can kind of individuate what someone does and you can separate what they do from the work of themselves. That in itself is kind of odd. It's not exploitation as such because it doesn't mean you're taking anything away from the workers. But suddenly the notion of what it is to act has changed. And it used to be that action was an inherent part of the individual. Now there's this separation between the doer and the deed, very Nietzschean in a way. Second moment is where you then have, through the contracts, the introduction of differences and hierarchy. And, and the kind of claim they're making, and I think this is the point where they, they kind of break with Marx, really, is that there are two moments. One is the constitution of labor. And then you have the constitution of surplus labor. All societies aren't understood according to their means of production because these kind of clusterous societies simply don't operate in terms of categories of labor. 
that's not what's going on. They're not productive. People act in terms of this kind of melodic conception. And then what happens is at some point, they get bound in some way. And then when they're bound, and you have this new notion of labour, suddenly the possibility for surplus emerges. They do go back to Marx for this in the apparatus of capture. And they say, you know, that people, in a sense, begin by owning their land. They're there on the land, it's their land. And at some point, you know, someone comes along and says, we're going to give you infrastructure, do all of these things. It's going to be great. And rather than owning the land, they then become people who just happen to be on the land at that moment. And suddenly the surplus, when there was one, which maybe the chief would go and distribute, you know, it would have no inherent value, becomes something that can be taken off and used for building the pyramids in that kind of pricing model. So this is really key to the formation of the state, is this movement between Varuna and Mitra, between binding and then the surplus. And I think it's related to what indifference and repetition is the relation between common sense just the constitution of the subject, and then good sense, which is the organisation of it. And so similarly, these two moments are in play. And I think this is, this is really key, in a sense. You know, once you have things bound, you're operating in terms of an extensive multiplicity. But what governs the nomadic is that it's operating in terms of intensity. And in a sense, the two, the two kind of, in a sense, miss each other for that reason. They're not connected up. And as you say, there's a third moment which is the, the military, you know, Indra, the gods, and this other figure who is the nomadic, who sort of stands outside the state, and they make this very strong claim that early states don't make war. They might have a police force. They don't kind of like actually make war. And that they only make war once that kind of nomadic moment is somehow incorporated into the state later on. But it's always kind of outside. It's always kind of incorporated but can't be properly captured. Yeah, sense. I think that's what's going on there. I think that they even turned to Virilio again for this this point about, as you said, the state may have its its forms of policing, but they don't necessarily. The war machine itself is not intrinsic from the get go to the state apparatus, right? That's that's its exteriority, and so it makes sense. Some of what we've discussed that I think in, is is it Plateau Five where they. They first maybe introduce the numbering number, but they don't unpack it until this, or they don't unpack it. It's still one of those interesting concepts, but they don't unpack it as much until this chapter. But there, they they identify it with what they call the counter-signifying regime, right? Mm -hmm. This It's counter-signifying because the signifier is identified with the despotic regime, with the state, with its use of language and writing and, and whatnot. So the counter-signifying regime is, is associated with these movements that we're talking about, the nomad, the numbering number, and against these bindings and distributions. I suppose what it was interesting, and this maybe sets you up, Coop, was they turned to Kristeva, right, to discuss the numbering number. And I wasn't, I guess I'm still not sure if that's her phrasing or if it's, or that they take, they take from her the, the concept itself of numbering number, but she at least gives them the intuition of this non-metric multiplicity, right? Which we, we've been calling, whether it be intensive multiplicity or something like this. And you very nicely kind of differentiate between cardinal numbers, one, two, three, four, and ordinal numbers, first, second, third, and how there is a kind of non-metric intensive aspect to it, right? You know, the difference between first and third is not the same 
difference between second and fourth, et cetera, right? We can kind of grasp that that is not necessarily a means of, of pure counting and, and metricity. That's right. And I think the first time I could find the term is in Deleuze's essay, Bergson's concept of difference. That's right. Yeah. Tell us about that. He uses it there. It goes back to this notion in Bergson where, which is in William James as well, actually. So it's got like a long history where Bergson talks about, you know, you look at something, you know, I've got my yellow watch. Now, yellow is a stable color. But he says, well, you know, when I perceive that yellow, then what I'm actually perceiving is like the, the wavelength event, you know, this whole series of bumpity, 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 bump as light hits it and is reflected off into my eye. And he kind of says, you know, well, it looks like a stable color, but what I'm actually seeing is this massive number of events, massive number of events, just kind of like as the frequency, you know, it kind of is constantly, well, you know, <laughs> as the, the light has a certain frequency. So, you know, there's a kind of rhythmic encounter between the, the waves of light and my, my optical system. So what appears to be a stable property is in fact made up of this massive number of events going on. You know, it's like this whole series of events going on very, very quickly. Obviously for Bergson, that's kind of prior to the kind of structures, the sort of, the sort of stable structures we find in the world around us. It's very, very similar to the, to the case of the vortices, right? You know? Yeah. Two vortex, you think it's stable, but in fact, it's caused by all of these particles going, going around and around and around really quickly. So that's the concept Bergson comes up with. It's numbering number is this, this intensive flux that generates stable structures. So that's going on. And it's a, it's a kind of non-metric notion for Bergson. But there's also this kind of spinazist conception as well. You know, it's very similar, you know, numbering number, numbered number, naturing nature, natured nature. It's Spinoza where you have the two ways of understanding God. You know, you can understand God as this explosive substance that's kind of going, pushing all this stuff out. Or you can understand the world as this kind of constituted system. So you can understand it's this kind of process of constitution or constituted. Those are the two axes that are going on in numbering number and numbered number. You know, there are two different ways of seeing things. And it, it goes back to, these are the two, two ways of seeing what an assemblage is, really, right? You know, you can either see an assemblage in terms of the fact that an assemblage constitutes certain systems, and you can push that process of constitution to an idealized form at the end. This never really happens, you know, but it, you can sort of say, for instance, that the assemblage of language constitutes language as a stable system. I mean, it's never really stable, but you can push it that way. And then you have kind of numbered number, or else you can see this intensive process where, you know, as we talk, language is constantly being territorialized and deterritorialized. And, you know, like you look at... It's being put in variation. Yeah. And, you know, like Black Americans come over with, with, with slavery and they they take language and they do different things with it. And they they sort of use the sounds in a different way, which kind of brings it back into this kind of intensive field. And then it, it becomes something very different. And that leads to, you know, blues and jazz and those structures. There's that other sense in which, therefore, you you focus on the, the, the constitution and the, the stable structure just becomes like a, a byproduct of these processes or right. you focus on the structure and then the the constitution becomes you know just uh an arbitrary fact and this again has a political element as they develop throughout the plateaus right because it is a difference between the perspective of a major 
mode, a standardized mode, standard Queen's English, we could even say, right? Uh, that's one way of standardizing, but the mode of the state, which presupposes a kind of, as you're saying, the stability, these forms versus mm -hmm. language in flux and variation and becoming, which is minoritarian. And there's constantly a kind of struggle. I mean, I'm just thinking about even whether it be in Quebec and the struggle for maintaining French in a sea of English, you know, or um, even in, in France and proposing French terms for a lot of terms that were just borrowed in from English. Like I remember one of the terms that always struck me was like, you know, this not very used, complicated French term for bulldozer instead of just like using this English term. So there's this way in which, you know, we can imagine different languages with their authorities, with their French academies, or as I said, Queen's English, whoever is presiding over that, the Oxford English Dictionary, right? Trying to like impose these forms for what is accepted and appropriate. And and that's why I think uh, Guattari says something, and they say it again in A Thousand Plateaus, uh, where the S in Chomsky, which is supposed to stand for sentence or whatever, is a, is a power marker right before a grammar marker, right? It's, it's, it's about the proper quote unquote, ways of, of using language, the, the official approved uses of language. And um, they have a lot of other things involved with this where, you know, you're not supposed to be ignorant of the laws of grammaticality, lest you be institutionalized, right, and, and be corrected in all of this. All of this has, you know, these political undertones. And um, so no, that's, that's good. I think in the UK, we've got, um, we've got comprehensive schools, the sort of state schools, and then there are private schools, but we've also got schools called grammar schools, which are kind of uh, state schools, but for, you know, selective and, and, you know, you're selected if you're intelligent enough, you go to these schools. And, and obviously the, the notion of grammar school fits in, or the, the name even fits in perfectly with what they're talking about, because, you know, what these schools teach is, you know, the ability to, I mean, they teach more than grammar, but, you know, grammar is really important because grammar allows you to for Deleuze and Guattari, to see who has the right to speak in the yeah. state. You know, right. like, who speaks grammatically? Who has the right to speak? They make that claim about Chomsky as well. You know, there's there's comp uh, competence, you know, whether you can use a language, and then there's performance, you know, how you actually do, you know, using a long sentence, you get the words wrong. But then there's a kind of social performance, right. or social competence, rather, which is about knowing when you're allowed to talk. Right. And when you can't talk. And that comes through, as you say, right in the grammatical structure of language. If you're posh and you, you sort of speak in a vernacular way, then, you know, you're sort of showing that you can, you know, you can get down with the people. <laughs> right. If you're, if you're not, if you're if you're poor and you speak in a vernacular way, it's because you're ill educated. The rules are very different about when you speak grammatically and when you don't. And all of these things are very important. And the missed out when you see language in terms of this ideal point. Yeah, one of my microfascisms that I'm sure probably peeves Coop, I, I just imagine, is I, I always point out some sort of like spelling, grammar, error, typo. I, I can be I can be a real grammar Nazi, a real uh, a stickler on that. And so I have to I have to be wary, be mindful of not not becoming enamored with that little uh, that little power tick of trying to correct people's people's use of language absolutely yeah it's difficult isn't it you know because uh we do exist in states <laughs> so we're kind of brought up with this stuff 
it's just one of those one of those things it's almost become a, a running joke at this point i think between us and uh i know that in the refrain plateau they go more into this difference between cadence and rhythm but it does seem to reproduce some of the stuff we've been talking about of the difference between metric space and non-metric space or even metric time and what Berkson might call durée, right? Which is qualitative rather than quantitative. And they refer to, I don't think that, and Coop, remind me, because we've talked about this before, right? I don't know if they, is it in the footnote where they, or is this Masumi adding, I think Masumi adds in brackets in the Kristeva footnote that we just talked about. Uh, mm -hmm. He adds in brackets, the reference to, to Frank Herbert. Am I remembering this correctly? I think they directly, they directly, mistaken. They talk about walking without rhythm, but because they... they quote they quote the passage from Children of Dune. See, he moved with the random walk, which made only those sounds natural to the desert. Nothing in his passage would indicate the human flesh moved there. It was a way of walking so deeply conditioned in him. He didn't need to think about it. The feet moved of themselves, no measurable rhythm to their pacing. In the war machine and nomadic existence, the number is no longer numbered, but becomes a cipher, and it is in this capacity that it constitutes the esprit de corps and invents the secret and its outgrowths, strategy, espionage, war ruses, ambush, diplomacy, etc. No, this is good. This is where they bring up they bring up Dune. And uh, again, but it's in the footnote. I was wondering if, it, if they actually cite Herbert. I did pull that. Yeah, look at the footnote. Character. Just, Henry, you might find it first, but... Yeah, yeah, I've got it here. It looks like it's a direct citation. No, okay, it is a direct citation. Yeah, and, then they, and then they bring up... Uh, Steva. So I suppose that was, I know that's one of the things that you and I have talked about, Coop, because I tried to understand the numbered number and the numbering number in from the very first book of Dune, where, you know, it seems as though the Harkonnens and even maybe the Empire are, and the Atreides family, they send out Duncan Idaho to go throughout the sieges and meet the Fremen and to, and to literally count them and see because there are these rumors about how many there are or aren't and duncan comes back and is like it's a lot more than we think and there's this kind of sense in which if we could just number them in a traditional standard metric way then we could prepare appropriate force to meet them head on even if their tactics would be much more probably guerrilla warfare as we find out and they are superior and in every way, even if Frank Herbert may not go into great detail about about that, except for knowing maybe how to maneuver in their own desert planet, which makes sense, but and how to harness the Shihalud, the worms. No questions here. I just I just wanted to bring it up because it's it helped me to understand numbering number and the concern, the anxiety on the behalf of the state and on the Harkonnens, you know, not being able to number the Fremen and thereby underestimating them because they are hedging their bets that, oh, it's it's really not as as big as they say. And the fact that the multiplicity of, of Fremen remains a little bit mysterious and is itself a kind of weapon and, and force or an advantage, at least. Henry, it is interesting. So like I've been obsessed with these connections with Dune and both Anti-Oedipus and obviously a thousand plateaus just because i think for one it's kind of this interesting kind of ethnography of the way that these these concepts can sort of be thought about not only like this numbering number aspect but also in the sense of the way that paul atreides is this sort of exiled noble 
and he almost kind of like a a figure which you bring up in the chapter Moses, right? He's kind of this sort of outsider that brings this hierarchical, like he's the one that appropriates the war machine of this sort of nomadic tribe that is undifferentiated, or at least they lack as striated, let's say, a, a social organism or something like that. And the way that they do it is through mythology. Almost to go back to the example of the way these of the way chess functions, like that would be a good analogy here, I think, in terms of they've been seated with these predetermined, I don't know what mm. you would say, like maybe the chess pieces would also would sort of be like an avatar, or like a, a character, a role for them to play. So they've been pre-fed this, these roles so that when Paul Atreides, the outsider, does come, he's immediately recognized as this figure that will become really their mess, their sort of messianic figure. And then he appropriates yeah. them and draws them into this sort of imperial situation. And then, you know, it just spirals out of control there and it, things go very badly <laughs> <laughs> once they do get appropriated into the actual state of the empire. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I really love Dune. And I think um, I read um, somewhat differently. I read um, Asimov's Foundation series. Right. And they struck me as kind of like the kind of the anti-Dune in a way, you know, because there's, you know, you have these figures and they're predicting what's going to happen by kind of these linear means, you know, right. thousands of years. And there's this kind of sense in which you can just extrapolate from where we are to the future. I think June does capture this, this sense in which, you know, all of this stuff is constituted from, you know, even when they're using the thumpers and, you know, and that sense and the, and the walking without rhythm, this sense that the landscape and the world is is the sort of the surface of this kind of interplay of forces and things that are not are not there. And similarly, the notion of numbering, you know, as you say, it's like the Fremen are this kind of these figures who, you know, it's not even, it doesn't even really matter. The number of them doesn't matter until they're brought into that structure. I think um do more on this. Yeah, <laughs> I, I really would like to write a book about these sort of connections. I think it's super interesting. I mean, even just the desert as a smooth space versus the city and this is a little bit veering off topic a bit, but I think it's just an interesting point relative to the walking without rhythm is like its relationship to chaos in the sense of like, there's no rhythm to it, but it's still a type of order in a sense, if that follows, it's which the, I think it's is the, quite fascinating. It's the discord and accord, right? Of the faculties, right? That the list talks about. It's that, that what crown anarchy or something like this to go back to some different repetition terms. Or it's like a, there's something... A signifying almost perhaps yeah yeah maybe that would i don't know maybe i'm getting out of my depth there but I, because there is something is happening but it's not really represent i guess then again it is sort of representing the natural milieu of the desert and try to mim mimicking that and aligning with the sort of the natural milieu maybe that breaks down but i mean and that's one of the, the figures they bring up when they discuss kenneth white and race and this notion of the nomad and the uh, and the milieu, right? And that there are there are dangers that are going on here. But this is to go back to the minoritarian, where they say, in terms of you know, in terms of race, race, there is no superior race. Race is minoritarian. It is always in opposition, conjunction to oppression and to dominance, a dominant system. And so I think that that too can play into to doing a little bit right, because there is the sense in which the the Fremen are the ones who are 
no matter what happens, whether it be the Atreides or the Harkonnens, at least at the start, it's like that's just the new master. Right. You know, yeah. their 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 wants and needs are are sort of always left out of the equation. Yeah, secondary to the extractive economics of the empire, really. Yeah. They're sort of viewed as these primitive savage people that really don't matter and right. are, you know, can be killed and so forth without recompense. I think the other another theme that's really that might come out here is that I mean it, they just want everyone to leave Arrakis, right? You know, they just and I think that brings out something that's really key to the war machine, which is that for states, the war machine is all about war. States appropriate it. States operate in terms of constituted structures and they, they relate to other structures. And so war is really fundamental. But for the nomadic war machine in its kind of natural state, in its ideal state would be a better way of putting it. You know, war is, I mean, it, it fights against states, but mm -hmm. it only fights against states because it wants to smooth space. It's not inherently tied to war. It's just that in trying to smooth spaces, it naturally comes into conflict with this, the forces of striation that have striated those structures. So there's something there's something very interesting there that I think you, you kind of see in Dune, that, you know, the war machine implies war, but it's not an essential component of what the war machine is. They enter into this conflict, but it's always secondary to the real goal, which is just simply to make these spaces smooth. Like, you know, in all these situations, when when you mess around with grammar, you know, you just want to create new variations within language, but then you invariably find yourself dealing with power structures where if people speak in schools like they did in the 1950s, you know, in uh, Black American English vernacular, whereas in fact they were just playing with a variation in language. So there's a natural movement whereby the war machine encounters striated space and then it becomes conflict. But inherent to it is simply this desire to smooth spaces. This reminds me of two things, and we can continue just a little bit uh, of the Dune stuff. One, I think it was Eugene Holland who, I could be wrong, and maybe I'm thinking of another guest we had on, who proposed thinking of war machines as metamorphic machines, insofar as war machines do not inherently take war as its object. That's only when they've been appropriated, as you were, as you were mm -hmm. saying, Henry. But the second thing would be, it's interesting how Deleuze and Guattari is always want to caution in letting us think that smooth means good, striated means bad because they do intimate, especially after the Second World War, where we have what they talk about. And they don't go too much into this in this plateau. They may delve, delve a little bit more in the 13th in Apparatus of Capture, which, as you said, forms a series, forms a block. But they do talk about the worldwide war machine, which, you know, in its fascist variations, we've obviously seen and, and they go into. But they also intimate the post-fascist worldwide war machine that is trying to smooth spaces out in spite of but also in league with the state apparatus and so we can't just think that smooth is is purely on the side of of some sort of eternal good we have to be a little bit careful and as always we're going to find these mixtures but the mixtures become more complicated once we get to this global era made possible by technology etc in advances of warfare the information age, the digital age, blah, blah, blah. When you move from states to the global system of capitalism as the primary structure, then the war machine becomes problematic. I mean, it's problematic, I think, because 
they talk about it in terms of non-denumerable sets, and right. which means that it, it essentially can't be captured within the logic of the state, but yet is still kind of like still harnessed by that state. So there's this sense in which the the war machine or these possibilities for radical transformation become just very negatively determined. You know, they mm. they uncontrollable forces or potentially uncontrollable forces because the state harnesses them, but yet at the same time is unable to fully understand what they are. The apparatus of capture is where yeah. they really go into that and they they draw out that result from the analysis in terms of set theory. So set theory becomes the model of form in that plateau. You know, we've talked about form in terms of Descartes and in terms of um, uh, Lucretius, but there it becomes this kind of set theoretical model. That's where you presuppose form and it's unable to account for these other processes. And they they, they talk a lot about Blanchet's yeah, the axiomatics. Axiomatics. Really interesting stuff. I was just thinking about how, Coop, this notion of the worldwide war machine, it made me think about what you were intimating with. It's when the Fremen get harnessed and appropriated and then unleashed on the galaxy or the galaxies. Right, yeah, exactly. Uh, that innumerable deaths, you know, trillions or whatever. I'm not sure. You you would have to tell me, but it, it seems like that's the aftermath of this post-fascist you know peace through terror type of situation that Deleuze and Guattari are talking yeah. about it's something like 60 billion I think or something okay. like that I think also to maybe segue a little bit because this I think goes hand in hand so to speak would be Henry discusses the metallurgy and I guess aspect and I think it is interesting like the way that I don't know these tools of war especially drawing from something like the peasantry during, I don't know, it's like the what the Edo period in Japan where you have the development of the farm implements get mobilized into the war effort against the nobility. The bow staff, like so a, a shepherd's staff becomes a weapon, something like not a scythe, but uh, like a pitchfork becomes a scythe. The, the kukri weapon. or whatever? Yeah. Or, um, well, that's that's a side, but or I'm not sure. Nunchucks would be maybe the, mm. uh, I forget what the implement would be, but I, I believe it is really developed out of some type of farm tools. I mean, if you want to draw an analogy for the Fremen, it would be the use of the worm tooth as their blade. I don't know. There's something kind of interesting there with regard to, I don't know, milieu. I don't know if that's necessarily getting maybe machinic phyla's we could stash that to the side, but I don't know. There's some type of element I couldn't really, can't really grasp what I'm sort of getting at as far as like the development, the way that these tools get reappropriated or metamorphized into something. I don't know if you can now help me out with that at all, Taylor. And, it, and it, well, it also seems to, to pinpoint the blacksmith being sort of a set apart from the nomads and the state and having truck with both of them in their itineracy, right? Because Henry, we've talked a little bit about the sedentary, which would be mm -hmm. the state and the nomad, but the Lizanguatri not just show how those are mixed, but complicate or at least name some of the mixtures we get, which is the itineracy of, of the Smiths versus the transhumans of these seasonal farming groups versus migrants, but we can at least talk about the itineracy of metallurgists who are following the, the flows of matter, which I think is what, Coop, they would think about in terms of the phylum. Okay, cool. In the next plateau, you have this whole account of how in the East, you have 
these tradespeople develop in terms of you have these big mega machine societies, these hydraulic societies, and they're, they're sort of building all these great things. So you have the emergence of like these crafts like metallurgy, but people are, you know, have very limited lives, you know, they're not respected in these communities. And then in the West, you have, you know, in places like Greece, you have a lot less organized societies. But they're kind of freer. And what happens is you have this migration of these metallurgical figures, these figures from the east to the west, and they bring with them these skills. And they they form this, this strange position because the, the communities in the west are not big enough to support a metallurgist, you know, someone who can make tools. They're just too, too small to support these extra people. So you have these people moving between communities who are you know, making tools. For these communities and they occupy this position that's very very ambiguous you know then they're, they're not part of the state but yet they're in the orbit of the state and they're they're kind of in a sense reliant on it and i think you know they talk about the mark of cain you know they've got this mark yeah so you know because they they need to be recognized you know they move between these different places you need to know that it's not like some enemy come to kill you it's the metallurgist doing his, his rounds and i think on the one hand this is a really interesting point a structure that you that you know you you also find in the state in a bigger sense maybe you know if you think about the school of bridges and roads that Anquerian talks about you know this kind of 18th century organization that of engineers that built the infrastructure in France similarly they had this kind of they weren't in the state but they because they had their own structures of organization and their own independence but they were kind of in the orbit of the state so they have this strange position historically where they're kind of not in either of those moments and we can say other things you know that they're focused on problems you know they make things they fix things and particularly the metallurgist is interested in the characteristics of matter you know the singularities of matter and i think if you think about an assemblage you know an assemblage is where you know matter's got these singularities and then a set of those singularities is selected out and, you know, they become organized and territorialized. They can be given a certain structure that allows them then to, to take on a function. They say there's a tetravalence to the assemblage. You know, on the one hand, it's got the function and, you know, there's the, the Helms-Levian stuff about function and um, content and expression. And on the other, there's this moment of intensity where they're kind of, the singularities are taken up and constituted and that they can... You know, the flexibility of the assemblage comes from the fact that we can move back down and deterritorialize these things. It seems like the, if you think about smooth and striated spaces as being ways of understanding assemblages, then the metallurgist is more like a figure who is able to kind of constitute assemblages in the first place, something like this. And I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm kind of on quite loose ground here but you know that seems to be what's going on that there's this extra space which is the holy space with holes not really <laughs> and it's that and that's the this kind of space that the metallurgist occupies where you have this kind of flow of stuff and the metallurgist kind of selects out bits in order to constitute assemblages you know it makes holes like literally you know kind of this flow of matter takes out materials and you know makes alloys and metals and all these things that then lead to assemblages etc etc so the the holy space is this kind of space of cutting away from the machinic phylum you know this, this field of singularities in order to make assemblages possible i think that's what's going on i mean it's 
it's kind of it's a bit obscure some of this stuff i mean does that sound right to you guys what i thought was interesting because you know this notion of the smith is is sort of not on the inside or the outside right i think that that's part of the holy space right it's not it's the intermezzo right it's the in between and that's what constitutes the itineracy is is sort of following the flows of matter which i thought was interesting for me because in anti-oedipus they seem to identify the nomad with following the flows and so you can see how certain embryonic conceptions burgeon and develop and multiply and and become a little bit more complicated as they not only think a little bit more about these and focus a little bit more on them but also the footnotes don't even do like half the justice of, of showing how much research they do. I mean, we, I don't know if you would call Deleuze and Guattari's work scholarly works, but if you look at capitalism and schizophrenia, I mean, obviously in, in all of, all of their works, but if you look specifically at these, these works, you can see the immense amount of, of material and it's interdisciplinary in, in a very straightforward sense. You can see how much more they are, really trying to go to these these sources. Some are authorities in a field, some are disparate thinkers, minor lines of thinkers like Kleist, like Artaud, who get brought up in, uh, like Desargues, another kind of semi-forgotten alternative to Cartesian geometry, right? Like they're, they're not only like mining, I guess that's a good word, they're not only mining uh, the scholarly fields, they're also sort of forging these new lineages, if you will. They're doing a little metallurgy themselves by, I don't want to say new lineage, but it's a minor line that's interesting to them. These, I love the Artaud-Riviere dispute that I think um, Deleuze had already, isn't in different repetition where he already kind of discusses this a little bit, where Artaud is trying to get these poems published and he's getting this feedback that's just like, look, if you just, if you could just, Put a little bit of form into it if you just work a little bit harder and you'll get there you'll be a good poet riviere is completely misunderstanding what arto is after and so it, it is similar to a lot of this these discussions that we're talking about where there is this notion of an imposition of a, a certain respected standardized major mode and form onto these minor in order to kind of suffocate or strangle out the semiotic asperities, as Guattari might call them, and to fit this preconceived notion of of a good form. I don't know how that relates to metallurgy, but I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to maybe articulate just some of the question of um, itineracy being much more for them defined in terms of of falling flows, whereas nomads seems to be like in touch with a relation to the earth and this deterritorialization that doesn't necessarily have to be in motion, as you intimated earlier. But this figure of, of Artaud is great. I know you, you said you, you would want to talk a little bit about Kleist and you bring up Desargues too in, in, your, um, in your chapter. I didn't know if you wanted to, to hit on any of that. I think what's going on here is that in this text is that the nomad and the, and the, the sort of sedentary thinker are both operating in terms of, of the assemblage. And that seems to be really, really key and the the metallurgist has this kind of odd role as, as somehow he's not on the border between the two you know that's the interesting thing is that although the metallurgist is kind of outside of both worlds 
he's not like a mix in a sense, but is something different from both, but yet related to both. And I think that's that's kind of what's what's kind of makes makes him difficult to understand, or him or her. I mean, I suppose they they tend to be male <laughs> itinerant metallurgists, I imagine. But you know, because if we go back to the desert being smooth and the city being striated, then you know, like in a sense. Deleuze and Guattari will say, well, well, no, that's not true. You know, you can go to the desert and you can just sort of wander around and not really understand what's going on and see it as a bunch of stuff. And I think if you've ever been to like a neighbourhood in a city, you know, if you know a city, then you know there are those that you walk through parts of the city, maybe a bit later at night, and, you know, you can sense the mood of the the area you're in and you have that kind of feeling that you need to keep an eye out for stuff which is not given by the structures present it's given by some kind of presentiment of something kind of like some kind of like underlying forces and similarly if, if you think about the the street children in Bogota as examples of a kind of nomadic people you know they occupy the city in a smooth way the smooth and the striated, in, in an odd way, are, are both ways of understanding the same things. You know, there's two different different ways of understanding the assemblage. And the question is whether you see the assemblage as a system in continuous variation, or you see it as a matter of constants and variables. And the metallurgy seems to just fall outside of that. But it's mm-hmm. it's I don't have a strong, a very particularly, I don't have a great notion of what the, the metallurgist is doing. To circle back, there was something, Coop, that you brought up that I thought was fascinating, where this repurposing of tools into weapons and also being a part of the machinic phylum and the development of of weapons. And they give, I think, Henry, you said uh, you went through five of the distinctions between tools and weapons. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there is a sense in which any tool can be a weapon if you use it right. But this is why they they speak a little bit more loosely in terms of these approximations. And it it does seem interesting, these differentiations, but also a little bit of, of continuity between the two and how even in terms of of strife, I think you, I don't know if you were talking about the French Revolution, but you were talking about some, maybe an earlier, but you were Quoting, I think, some 17th century, maybe English historian talking about even the the women and children coming out with, you know, shovels and and sticks and whatnot. To, again, tools can do this repurposing, but it does seem interesting how there is a, a sense in which the evolution of weaponry and warfare is tied into this discussion of assemblages that we're talking about you know where one of the simplest assemblages they talk about which is related to a milieu of the steps where they talk about man horse bow it's a fairly simple assemblage to grasp and useful just to like articulate it's the harnessing and obviously there would be particular developments along the way that would help to make this simple assemblage into something of an effective horse bow unit like the development of the stirrup like the um the shaping of bows from hunting to something more mobile and and compact composite bows etc there's this whole interesting historical development that can be seen in the uh in the perfecting of the assemblage i think they they try and tread a line between you know on the one hand they want to 
recognize that tools can be really important. Like the stirrup is the key example, right? You know, the stirrup transforms the horseman because they, instead of, you know, having to use their hand, they can incorporate the weight and the force of the horse into the strike. So the stirrup, because they sit firmly on the horse, changes all of that. It also kind of operates within, you know, you need a whole system. A social system. To make that work, right? Yeah. yeah. You need like feudalism. Yeah, right. Okay. Without the, the feudal system, you don't have the resources channeled so that, you know, a man can have a horse and a full set of armor and then like another horse in case that horse gets killed on the battlefield, he needs a replacement. And, and a page and, and whatever it is that, page, you know, an yeah, entourage, and, right. And, you know, you start getting love poetry that's that's about great deeds done on the battlefield because now, you know, you can move fast. So the initiative of the individual knight becomes important. Um, notions of chivalry become important. So all of these structures are kind of interplaying in this really complex way. And, you know, it, it sort of changes everything. So absolutely. I mean, it's tools. But Coop, like you were saying, you know, it's the, the nunchucks, I think, were used for beating grain. The tools were kind of like, had a purpose and then in a different assemblage they become something very very different it's this kind of weird thing where you know singularities are taken up selected but they have to be selected within a whole system in order to to become an assemblage yeah absolutely it's like the book where the stirrup example comes from is about the way in which technology shapes society and i think that they want to have a more balanced view where the tool itself is a product of the assemblage. You know, the tool and its function is a product of the assemblage rather than it, it being the, the ground. I thought that was interesting, the discussion of with these different assemblages, they come part and parcel of, of these, you know, of these societal assemblages. So there's a whole ripple effect. And, um, you know, it reminds me of one of Deleuze's seminars. It was one of the first translated and up on Web Deleuze. Now it's, I forget the title but it was about multiplicities and Deleuze is fascinated by this sort of ancient Chinese manual that treats in the same language in the same breath love and war and he's he's fascinated with the societal organization the whole milieu surrounding it that allows for this discussion of love and war in the same language, in the same metaphors, in the same text. It just kind of reminded me in general about with the evolution of this chivalric warfare, what comes a whole coterie of different changes in society, including literary forms, including societal organizations, including these hierarchies, including these more complex, these support systems, if you will as you were kind of already saying with the blacksmith not being able to be, you know, not these, these towns and villages, not necessarily being able to be complex enough to support a blacksmith. The same could go for knights, right? It really takes a more, a different organization of society, a different territorial machine, if you will. Absolutely. And, you know, like the, the free men who used to, you know, they were free because they could supply the, their own sword and their own armor and go to fight. And then suddenly they get disenfranchised because, you know, you don't need them anymore. You just want them to supply a certain amount of money to to support the knight. Yeah. So everything changes. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, it's fascinating, these movements with assemblages. The other factor here is obviously the, the Crusades, which then go in the opposite direction and start deterritorializing these this, this feudal structure which I think Watari is very interested in. The Crusades is this, this, second, this 
other moment within the same assemblage. In the first, maybe the first chapter, maybe the introduction of schizoanalytic cartographies, that's one of the anticipations of the whole book is he's going to focus on this interesting moment in Christianity and, and its whole rhizomatic spiraling out in its development. And a lot of that reflection is obviously borne out in the work done in capitalism and schizophrenia. So it makes sense. The same with the machinic unconscious. You know, he even says that it's a kind of a handbook to a thousand plateaus. And so we see meditations on the refrain, on faciality, on semiotics. And uh, all that's very relevant here. Is there anything else we wanted to, to hit upon that obviously haven't exhausted the plateau, but was there anything else you wanted to discuss before we allow you space for your, your, your outro? Maybe we can come back and talk some other time about yeah, yeah. something else. I mean, there's so much here. You could just talk for hours and hours and hours about, about this one plateau. I think maybe we should cut it yeah. up there. Save some meat on the bone. You mentioned two books that you're working on. Obviously, the book on a thousand plateaus, which you've said you've got it, you've got at least half finished, and you you've got at least. I mean, I'm not sure what stage you're in, but you've been you mentioned a SART book. Is there any other? Is there anything else going on? Anything else of significance that you'd like to sort of tell us about in the near future? Gosh, well, I think that's um, that's most of it. I know you, I know you're talking to to Jeff Bell at some point soon. Yes. Though. And uh, Jeff and I are doing um, the Deleuzian Mind, <laughs> which okay. is a collection of kind of like 40 odd essays on Deleuze that, by various scholars. So that's hopefully this isn't about the minds of Deleuzians, which would be truly <laughs> horrifying and more about Deleuze himself. Correct. I mean, it's a series. You can go and see there's a Kierkegaardian Mind. And okay. Okay. Mind and uh, a whole series of other ones. So. So no, I mean it's a it's an unusual choice for a title, but but that's uh that's going on too at the moment, which is which is great actually because you know we're reading um, tons of stuff about bits of Deleuze and Guattari and stuff that we didn't you wouldn't normally read, you know, yeah. just because you can read everything. So yeah, yeah. So that's coming out too. But um, aside from that, I mean to be honest, I'm just getting really obsessive about working through a thousand plateaus at the moment. Yeah. I'm really just trying to spend all of my time you know, figuring out what's going on. They call it like a rhizome book or something like this. So, you know, you can, you don't have a beginning or end and that's frightening too. So uh, hopefully you'll, you'll burrow your way out through the middle again and, <laughs> and be able to, to come out with this. And we'd love to have you back to, I think I had mentioned that I find, um, you know, everybody has their favorite plateau and they even say it's like a record you can listen to. You might have your favorite tracks. And one of mine is the postulates of linguistics. I think the way it's it's written is interesting because it really does showcase some of what we talked about today, the major and minor modes, for example. Once you've gotten that polished and sent off to press, or if that's too long, we'll 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 yoke you back in, you know, just to do some more of this or or to talk about. The Delizian Mind, which might be a way to, to get you and, and Jeff together. But yeah, we're, we're talking to Jeffrey in March. It might be sooner than that. I have to look at the schedule, but we are having him on probably in like a week and a half, something like that. Yeah, right. He's or maybe two weeks. Yeah, February 18th is when we're February. recording. So yeah, we'll have Jeffrey on soon. And I know we're going to focus on his book. I forget the title off the top of my head, but it's on the, it's sort of 
Undermining the Continental Analytic Divide. It's one of his more recent books. An yeah, Inquiry nice. into Analytic Continental Metaphysics. So there that sounds pretty fun, actually. I think that'll be good because we often stray on the continental side, but it's it's nice to to try to undermine that divide and show it not to be as as hard and fast. And there's easy ways to parody either, obviously. So showing continuities there and and overlaps is is really important. I have to thank you for for getting us in touch. That was really kind of you and really great. And you gave me another uh, thread to follow up. I'll try to get in touch with Anne Carrion, and that would be that would be great to bring her in because she's done work on Deleuze that is uh, that is fascinating. And we'll get to see uh, a little bit of that that work. I could have talked to you more about the occult and its downfall, but it reminded me a little bit about you know you said it, it was at the French Revolution that things really start to fall apart and get overcoded, and it reminded me a little bit about the history of the occult normals. And it's these normal schools, these standard standardized schools that kind of are part and parcel of the outgrowth of of the French Revolution and the superior, right? The Ecole Normale Superior is like this teaching of teachers how to properly teach. So it, it, it there's a whole history of education in in France that's that's fascinating that the readers will get to see in uh, in this chapter in particular, and probably in in some of the other chapters in your in your book. And I know that would have been that would have taken a whole long detour to like contextualize, but it's it's nicely done in your in your in the in the, the chapter you showed us. Oh, thank you. I've actually finished the the postulate, so uh, yeah. Now, so <laughs> we can take a break for a while, but like, yeah, I'd be more than happy to come back and talk about them. I sort of felt the same as you. I wasn't I wasn't particularly expecting a lot from them. Just before I went through, but I by the end I I thought they're fantastic. There's some really fantastic work there, particularly coming after the geology of morals as well. You know, yeah. the way those two tie together, I think it's really, really interesting. So and I feel like the geology, if you read a thousand plateaus linearly and you get to the geology, I think it's by that time in the book that you want to start putting it down. You're like, <laughs> okay, that's a little bit too much strata, epistrata, parastrata, like. You know, that's a little too much Helmsleb for me, dog. You have to really like kind of yeah. power through it. It reminds me too of like difference repetition where you chapter one, you start to get into the Aristotle stuff and you're like, I don't know. Can I just skip this? Come back. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, Henry, thanks for um, thanks for coming on the show. And um, and I'll be sure to let you know once this episode drops, which might be in probably two weeks. And I'll also let you know um, how, how the conversation interview goes with with jeff yeah well I, i'm sure like jeff and i talk a lot so i'm sure i'm here anyway but um, <laughs> there you go yeah thank you so much both of you for, for having me on again I, I, absolutely you know, again, I, I really enjoyed it so we got to talk shop we got to talk <laughs> it was this is uh an entry into the delizian mind right where we, we get we get to talk uh deliz inside yeah. baseball Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. We're going to we're going to stay on for uh, a few more minutes just to talk about our next episode and we'll be in touch. And it's been our pleasure. All right. No, it's been great, guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks again, Henry. And once again, thanks to Henry Summers Hall for joining Taylor and I on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity. Including the ultimate form of security, which is This is a typical violence of people.